Father, we thank you, Lord. We worship you. We honor you. We glorify you. Not only through song, through praise, or through dance, but also through the declaration of the word. We just proclaim the name of Jesus in this place, that you will receive the highest honor and the deepest worship from our hearts, Lord. And that you will be honored through the declaration of your scripture. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will be here, because Lord, it is not words of uh, a teacher that would convict you are the one that would speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, for this evening's session, I ask, Lord, for your grace. I ask, Lord, for your leading and your empowerment, because apart from you, we know that we can do nothing. And so teach us, Lord, and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, and as you would have been following us, we've gone through the Beatitudes, we've spoken about salt and light, Uh, We've gone into Jesus' very general principle of the law that He upholds, um, that nothing is being abolished. He came to fulfill it. And that means that He wants to show us all how to interpret it correctly. Because once you interpret the law rightly, then you can obey it correctly. Misinterpretation will lead to misobedience. Now, that's always interesting for myself because I don't want to disobey. But today, I don't want to misobey. Where I think I'm doing something right, but actually I'm doing something wrong. And we have come to a specific example. Last week, we went into the first example of Jesus. The pairing of, you have heard it said to you, but now I say to you. He clarifies the teaching of the Pharisees. This week, we will get into the second example of this pairing. Last week, we spoke about murder. And Jesus says, I say to you, anyone who already has anger within the heart, now that's already something that you have to deal with. This time, we will talk about adultery. And Jesus deals with lust. Let me digress a little bit, a short detour. You know, in Jesus' sermon up on the discourse on Mount Olives, after he talks about the signs of the times, there's one phrase that he uses. He says, As in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What happened in the days of Noah? If you know your Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, we are told that in those days, evil was the only intent in the hearts of men. And of course, we can think about Robbery. We can think about killing, the different kinds of evil. But this evening, in this teaching, I want to suggest to you that perhaps one big problem or one big evil in the days of Noah would be the problem of sexual immorality amongst the people. And that would be what we are going to be dealing with this evening. And so I want you to be praying with me even as I go through this. Because it is something that is very relevant in our days. And it is a topic that I believe the church doesn't really preach about much. It can be very, very sensitive. But we must also thank God that in recent times, awareness is increasing. And more pastors are willing to talk about sexuality, sexual immorality, however difficult it might be. But I believe this topic has to be raised as well as to be addressed. And so for the very first time in the Kingdom 101 message, we have a rating. That this week's teaching has been rated (laughs) PG-13. There will be some sensitivities or some issues that we'll talk about, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring understanding to what we need to hear. So let's go to the passage The scripture for this teaching is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus addresses a commandment from the Mosaic law. And we know that this is derived and found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The Pharisees taught it one way, by tradition, as long as you do not physically engage in the act of adultery, you're okay. You did not break this law. But Jesus comes and He says, But I say to you, what is Jesus really saying? And I hope that we can examine the words of Jesus, get into it at some depth, have some clarity, and after that, I hope to leave you some practical points so that we can better administer the understanding of this teaching. The seventh commandment was given at the time of Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And we know that the people of Israel had come out from Egypt and they are in this place called Mount Sinai. Now interestingly, at the foot of Mount Sinai, quite immediately in Exodus chapter 32, we are told that Moses spent a little bit longer up on the mountain and the people didn't know when he was coming back. And so they looked at Aaron and he said, Aaron, will you do something for us? You know, build us a god or something like that. And so they say, yeah, okay. So you know he fashions a golden calf. And it says in the Bible in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 6, they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offering, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. And in verse 7, God then tells Moses, the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. If we just look at this at a glance, it is easy for us just to conclude to say, well, simply idolatry. You should not make an image of this God. And that was what they did, golden calf. But here the Bible says that they have corrupted themselves, not just with idolatry. The word that we see that they rose up to play, they sat down to eat and to drink. You can talk about feasting. But when they rose up to play, it wasn't monopoly. It wasn't just a game that they played. But in this phrasing, we understand that they engaged in sexual immorality. And you will see that idolatry and sexual immorality tend to be mentioned together over and over again through the entire scriptures. Which suggests to us to be careful that each time there's idolatry, somehow sexual immorality is also involved. All Israel knew at that point in time was what they had observed in the land of Egypt. It wasn't just idols that they worshipped. It was also the kind of lifestyle that they probably would have followed. And because of that, 3,000 people died. God sent a plague right through them. Not too long after that, in Numbers chapter 25, we know the account of Balaam that was to be commissioned by this king called Balak to curse the people of Israel. And each time Balaam tried to do that, there was just no way he could curse Israel, right? And that to me as a side note is really encouraging because you can try to curse the people of God, but Balaam actually said this, whom God has blessed, I cannot curse. Isn't that beautiful? Now, just take that as a side note, like I said. You see, sometimes we as the people of God, we're so worried that someone is going to curse us. Here's a tremendous promise. Have we been blessed by God? Yes or no? Yes. Are we all blessed of God? Of course we are. Whom God has blessed, no one can curse. That's a promise that you and I have. As much as he tried, he couldn't curse Israel. He couldn't do anything. But almost immediately after that, we see in Numbers chapter 25, Israel brought judgment upon themselves. How? The Bible shows us here. Let's turn to Numbers 25. Numbers 25, verse 1 and verse 2. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and a people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down 
to their gods. Can you see this again? Sexual immorality and idolatry mentioned together one more time. Balaam couldn't curse the people of God, but the people of God can bring judgment upon themselves. Always remember this. And because of that, we are told in the account in Numbers 25, 24,000 died in the plague. Now some can look at this and always when we read the Old Testament, they will say, well, again, Old Testament. Why should we even be worried about Old Testament? Because today, we are New Testament people. Do you know that in the New Testament, we are warned of the doctrine of Balaam? We are to be careful because some have gone the way and run after the error of Balaam. You find that in Jude verse 11. If that's not enough for you, in the book of Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 to the church in Pergamos, there's another warning. And Jesus actually says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now what is this doctrine? It's very clear there. Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Are you hearing what I'm sharing with you, friends? You see, whenever there's idolatry, you've got to be careful because somehow the sexual immorality creeps in because we are worshipping something other than who God is. In the New Testament, Paul also used both these examples to warn the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 8. Now these things became our examples. And I always say this, love the blessings, but heed the warnings. The blessings that are contained in Scripture, they are God-breathed and Holy Spirit-inspired. So are the warnings. You can't take one and throw the other out. These became our examples to the intent that we should not lust. Take hold of that word. After evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The next verse, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. See, I'm giving this as a background. Because this problem is, did not just emerge suddenly in our day and in our age. Idolatry and sexual immorality are closely related and from the start of the Bible all the way to the end, we are warned to be careful of this. Let's go on a little bit more and look at the seriousness of adultery as well as sexual immorality. I've chosen to address these two things together because adultery, although it is relating to marriages specifically, and sexual immorality can relate to both married people as well as singles. They are the same issue. You'll find the same root cause. The seriousness of adultery and sexual immorality. Turn with me to Leviticus. I want to stay with the Word of God because it's not what I say. You need to hear what God's Word has to say about all these things. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Firstly, we have to be convinced about the holiness of God and the expectation of His people. You have to start there. If you start anywhere else, you have a wrong perspective, you have a wrong mindset and wrong worldview. We have to look at the holiness of God as well as the separatedness and the expectation of God's people. If your Bible has a heading, in Leviticus chapter 18, you will see, as mine would have, and it describes the laws of sexual morality. Let me read to you verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwell, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in your ordinances, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. 
Now, can you see this simple passage where you have come out from? Don't follow what they are doing or have done. You've observed all these things before. That's the past. Where I'm bringing you into, you're not supposed to also follow these guys because they are equally as bad. Now, parallel this for our Christian walk. We as God people, have we been taken out of the world? Yes or no? That's a yes. Amen. But now we're not off the world, but we're not put back into the world. And so God is saying, where you have been taken out from, now don't do those things again. And now you're going to go back into the world where I'm going to send you in as my people. Now please don't do those things either. Because I am the Lord your God. I am a holy God. And you are a set-apart people for me. Now what follows in this entire chapter? Laws on sexual morality. Warnings against sexual immorality. And there's one verse somewhere in there that says, it is because of their acts that I'm driving them out and I'm taking you in. So don't do the same things. Otherwise, the land will vomit you out. Which we know, hundreds of years later, that was what happened. Next chapter in Leviticus 19, verse 1 and 2. Lord spoke to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I mean, this is the reason. God is holy, and so we are to be like our Father, and to be also holy. One chapter down, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes, perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The world lives like that. People of God, don't be like that. God is holy. There's a moral wholeness and there's a positional wholeness. There's a functional wholeness. See it any way you want. We are different. Amen? We are different. The question is, are we? The second thing to understand is about marriage. Marriage as an institution that is put in place by God who is holy. Marriage is a representation of God's relationship with His people. It is a picture of faithfulness. It is a picture also of fidelity. And if that is not enough, marriage also foreshadows the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so if there is sexual immorality, if there is unfaithfulness, then it does not uphold that institution of marriage. We do not show a good picture of what it means of a relationship between God and His people. The third thing about adultery and sexual immorality that we have to learn about is about sex. That we see that sex is a gift from God. But sex is a gift from God that is to be enjoyed within the intimacy of the marital relationship. Now you can't understand that if you don't uphold the marriage institution. And you won't uphold the marriage institution if you don't see that God is holy and He desires for us to have holy marriages and not to defile the marital bed. Sex is a gift that is to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. In fact, sex is the very first act that would consummate a marriage. Even in secular law, where a marriage is not consummated, where there is no physical act involved, that marriage can be considered nile, as if it did not happen. But do you know that there's a spiritual meaning behind it? Because God already declared right in the beginning that when the two come together, they shall become one. Friends, it's not just a physical coming together, that in the spiritual, something happens. When there's a physical act, a sexual act, spiritually, something connects. The two shall become one. That's how serious it is. And that's why it has to be kept within the man and the woman in marriage. And today we have to even further declare and define that in marriage it is man and woman. We can't even presume that anymore in our society because that is being challenged and being redefined in so many ways. 
Sex is a gift from God. And it's not just for physical pleasure, but there are spiritual implications. Adultery and sexual immorality is a very, very serious issue because once we understand the first three points, then the fourth point is important. You've got to protect this institution. Marriage is the core of the family. As you protect this marriage, then you are protecting the family as the most basic unit of society. And as you protect the family, then you are protecting society. But can you see, if the marriage bed is defiled, if sexual immorality is rampant, then the marriage breaks down, the family breaks down, society will break down. And it is breaking down. All over the world, it is breaking down. Because we are not treating these points seriously anymore. And the church needs to wake up even to this. In Leviticus, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It is an evil that is so threatening that it must be dealt with decisively. And death was the penalty at that time. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. That's how serious this topic is. I hope I've got your attention. And I hope I've got your agreement also. Now if you agree with me, then let's look at what Jesus says. What is then the right interpretation of the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her the Pharisees were saying, look, if there's no physical contact, if there's no act of adultery, that is fine. But is it really? Jesus says you don't even have to go that far. I'm telling you, you have to deal with lust first. You've got to nip this one in the bud. He says, if a man looks at a woman to lust for her, and this first thing we know, you have to see that there's a looking with an intention. It doesn't mean that you cannot admire someone's attractiveness or beauty. If that were the case, I can't look at all of you tonight. But if you are looking and you say, oh, beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Oh. Then you're looking with an intention to have sexual relations with this person. It can also mean the other way that you might be looking perhaps flirtatiously, invitingly to get this other person to last after you. So it works both ways. But can you see Jesus is going straight for the heart again. In and through the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, but I say this to you, this will become a pattern. You can almost expect this. Jesus is looking straight at the heart because that is where adultery begins. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he explains, for out of the heart, it's not whatever goes in that defiles, it is right from within the heart. It proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. That's where it starts. Jesus didn't just comment on the seventh commandment. He combined both the seventh and the tenth commandment. It's not just you shall not commit adultery. What does the tenth commandment say? You shall not covet. You are wanting something that is not yours. You are wanting something that does not belong to you. So he combines both the seventh as well as the tenth. And I tell you, my friends, if you always remember the tenth commandment, Man, that is like the catch-all commandment. How many of us can say that we have never coveted? It's very hard, isn't it? 
We've always wanted something more of someone else's. Although it says whoever looks at a woman, so it seems to be targeting the men. But can I disappoint you ladies that this is also for you? (laughs) That is not just for the men, but it's also applicable to the women. Now we all know, and I hope, I think we do, but let me just say it anyway, that men are more visually aroused, visually attracted than the women. But it does not mean that the women do not have lustful thoughts. And with what is happening in society, the way that media has portrayed even sometimes for the women, there's this program, there was a hit TV series, I think an award winner, it's called The Desperate Housewives. And it sort of portrays the women as if like um, they're so free that nothing else better to do, they're always looking at the postman, looking at the gardener, and trying to strike up a deal of sorts. Today, more women are working out of the home. They're spending longer hours with colleagues. They're doing projects. And you and I know that when you're on a project, there's a common ground, there's, there's common cause. You're attracted to one another. You're stressed. You want an outlet. Things happen. Today, women are happy to dress provocatively. Now, if that word is offensive, then shall I say attractively. But what's the idea? It is to attract. So we can't say that it's only for the men, this commandment. Yes, it's directed at the men. But are the women, do they run away scot-free because of this? No. More recently, I really can't understand. If, if maybe you don't see this on your Facebook posts. I can't understand married women, Christians, openly googling and gagaing, raving over Korean hunks as they watch Descendants of the Sun. I'm sorry, I'm not looking at you just in case you might be one of them. But you may say, but it's, it's innocent. But this applies to you. You see, it's not just the men. I mean, I can give examples for the men, but I don't think I need to do that. But for the women where we presume that it doesn't affect them, that's why I'm spending a little bit more time. Lust is applicable not just for the married, although we're talking about adultery here. It is also for the singles. And so we have married people here and we have singles. This affects you too. So if you look at someone else with lust or with an intention or you begin to fantasize, then you have already committed fornication in your heart. Just replace those words. The principle remains the same you would have already committed fornication. Now you may say, oh no, but it's okay, you know, when I get married, I'll be fine. That's not true. Because you bring this into your marriage. You bring these habits all the way into your marriage and you find that you can't stop. So this is also for the singles. This commandment is not just for adultery, as I've already said just now but it's for all forms of sexual immorality. Today we know premarital sex is rampant. We know even cohabitation tends to be quite a norm today. Extended to same-sex attraction, problem. Homosexuality, transgenderism. And be careful because bestiality is just down the line. Human beings with animals. Where do we stop? You have to deal with lust first. Jesus goes directly, straight for the heart. This is how serious it is. He goes for the heart. So this is his instruction. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And he says, well, if that's not enough, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off, throw it away. Let me give you an illustration. If you had one part of your body that is diseased and it's spreading, what do you think the doctor would say to you? I think we need to cut this part off, otherwise it's going to infect and affect the rest of your body. So to save you, let's do this thing. That's how critical it is. 
And so perhaps Jesus was alluding to that and giving that kind of a, a picture. Let's breathe a big sigh of relief. Jesus was using a hyperbole. In other words, he was exaggerating. He was not being literal. But he was exaggerating to that point to say, look, is that serious? This is how important this point is. Do you know the early church fathers, some of them took it literally. And they had themselves castrated, cut off some of their parts of their bodies so that they will not commit this sin and they can deal with lust. But the point is, it was not about mutilation. Jesus was really talking about mortification. Not mutilation of a certain part, but putting to death a certain part. Consider this if you will. You can cut off every part of your body, and you know something? You can still lust. It's not the members of the body per se. It is right there in the heart. Unless you're dead, you will continue to lust. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying. You need to die. You need to die. And here's the promise of the cross, isn't it? That's where the good news is. That He dies for us and then when we believe in Him, we died with Him. We were buried with Him. We were raised with Him and we're no longer the old man. We are today a new creation. Then Paul says in the epistles, now put to death. Mortify. Mortify those parts. Because you are dead already but you're alive in Christ. You are a new person. And that's what you must always remember. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. See those words again? Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you put it to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus was just making this point so critical. Is that important? There was a report of a man who went mountaineering or trekking or something like that. He fell, his, he got caught in a crevice of uh, between two rocks. His arm was stuck inside there. There was no way of rescuing him because there was no handphone at that point in time. He, he wasn't able to contact anyone. Night was going to fall. Temperature was going to be really cold. He knows that if he was to remain there, he would freeze to death. So this guy takes out his pocket knife, his Swiss army knife, one small little pocket knife, and he began to cut his own arm. He cut himself free. His arm was still stuck between the crevice of the rock. But he lived. But he lived. I believe Jesus is really saying that to the people. He said, if you don't deal with lust, the consequences can be very dire. You may not die physically, and some have, but your relationships can die. Your emotions can die. Your life, you're just like dead. You're like a zombie. Don't we know people like that? Have we not come across people like that? Is that physical death? Yes. AIDS is a big problem today. STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, is on the rise. Why? You know the answer. So what is this disease that we might be infected with? I, I call it, you know, Jesus was saying using eyes and, and hands is, is like an HFMD, you know. And you can add in the, the EHFMD, hand, foot, mouth, and you add an eye in front, just to remain and stay true to scriptures. And we can be diseased in these areas because our eyes, you know, how does it cause us to sin? Visual attraction, we've already spoken about that, right? flirtatious looks. What are we looking at? What kind of magazines are we reading? What kind of books do we look at? What kind of uh, the pornography that's on the internet that is so open to anyone today? One click. Sometimes you're not looking for it. It looks for you. Now that causes you to sin. You have to do something with that and to that. How about the hands? After you look, you want to touch. If you're talking about getting close to a certain person, Right? It can be a very simple holding of hands, right? a touching on the shoulder, a very callous hug, or so you think. How about the feet? 
it can bring you to places that you, you shouldn't be going. When I do a premarital counseling and I speak to a young couple, I say, you please be careful, okay? I know things, you guys like romantic, romantic things. You know, have you realized when you talk to young couples before they are married, uh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet, you can get diabetes talking to them. And I say, I know, you love all these more, 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 more things. But I say, you be careful, you get into a, a dark place, you, you, you get into a room, you, you get into a, a you, you can compromise. You can throw caution to the wind. Don't we understand that? Have we not been there ourselves? How about the mouth? Sweet talking, compliments, flirtatious talk, sexual innuendos. See, you have to recognize all these things because it starts there. Right from the heart, it comes out. But you and I know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have received new hearts. Amen? And last week I shared this with you. Today I say the same thing. And we can apply it throughout. That our members of our body are to be instruments. Instruments of righteousness. We are to offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. What are you doing with your eyes? With your mouth? With your hands? This is what you have to think about. Deal with lust first. I believe it's as straightforward as that, not that it's simple. I believe that's what Jesus was saying. The question is, how do we move ahead with this? Because you and I know that at some level, we struggle with lust. Let me just say, praise God for extreme, immediate, radical transformations where some have been instantly delivered from their lust problems and their addictions. And we've heard testimonies of that. But it does not mean that they never struggle anymore. Because we will all struggle with, with the sexual sins and with temptations over and over again. It's a matter of degree. So let me suggest to you 10 points. Don't worry, you're still going home on time. 10 points. All right, 10 quick ones. What do we start with? If we want to have a checklist for ourselves. Friends, start with the fear of the Lord. Start with the fear of the Lord. You know, just now we spoke about the holiness of God. I believe we have to couple this with the fear of the Lord. We have to recover this healthy, reverential fear and the awe of the Lord. I'm all for being thankful for His grace, His love, but we are told to fear the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says that the spirit of wisdom, of knowledge, of power, everything is also the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So if we have received the Holy Spirit and it's the right Spirit leading us, there has to be a proper fear of God. And our problem is that I think we, we don't fear the Lord. We have made things so casual that this God of the universe, this, this big God, this holy God, we just tell Him, never mind, lah, just forgive long, what's the problem? That's not called the fear of the Lord. We, we rationalize away. The fear of the Lord. We say, oh no, as long as you worship Him, that's fine. In that, in that time of worship, everything is going to be okay. You will be set free. Praise God for those who have encountered you know, deliverance and so on. But I also know that others are still struggling. And outside, you still have your little escapades. You have your secret things, your flings, and you still watch the internet. I don't care how much, how much you prostrate yourself in that time of worship, how many tears you shed. If you still go back to all these things, you have not feared the Lord. If you truly believe God watches and knows everything, will we live differently? If you truly fear the Lord, we would seek to please Him. Adultery, sexual immorality is all about pleasing ourselves. And this fear of the Lord is not that we, we fear Him, that we want to please Him out of torment, but we want to please Him out of love. Because He first loved us. Have you been praying for the will of God? All Christians have always does, right? What's the will of God for me? Why don't you take down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You have the answer from Bible? This is God's will for you. Are you happy with that? Fear Him. Please Him. Secondly, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about speak tongues louder and longer. 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, which means a whole mess. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are drunk with wine, you're intoxicated with hot liquor. And embarrassingly, I have to admit that there have been times in the past, you know, where I just acted like a stupid fool under that kind of influence. In the same way you are under that influence, will you yield to the control of the Holy Spirit now that you are a believer? It's talking about control. It's talking about influence. It's talking about developing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which will be contrary to the works of the flesh. What's the very first one you remember from Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Love does not exploit other people for your own gain. So if you're led by the Holy Spirit and developing this aspect of the fruit, will you be hurting your own spouse? Will you be taking advantage of someone else? Will you only be living for your own pleasure? Love will honor the dignity of every person made in the image of God. Love will not cause hurt or pain in a family. Self-control, right at the end. It's a key trait when you're talking about dealing with temptations and with, with lust and with passions and with desires. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Point number three, flee youthful lusts. There's still something for you to do. Don't get all spiritual and sit down there and pray in tongues and things that, you know, everything is going to be fine. You have to flee youthful lusts. I don't think I need to explain what youthful lusts are, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee youthful lusts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee means to run away, walk away, turn away. Look away. Get away. Make sense? You know the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She was seducing him. Not once, not twice. Day after day. But what does Joseph say? He runs away from her. What was his motivation? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The fear of the Lord. It starts there. If we would remember that, we would live differently. Point number four, focus on being on assignment. Because the verse that comes before 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, actually says, cleanse yourselves so that you can be vessels for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Your sexual immorality or your behavior or your lack of control of lust will affect your assignment. It will affect your ministry. At the same time, if you're not focused on living for Jesus and serving Him with all your heart, you will be distracted by the temptations that come along the way. We know this, right? The idle mind is the devil's workshop. But don't give the devil so much credit. It usually begins with us. All he has to do is just encourage you a little bit along that way. I love this example of Uriah, the soldier that was very focused on fighting the battle that was called back by King David because King David wanted to cover what? An adultery. And Uriah refused to be distracted and he stayed faithful so that he can get back on his assignment. But you contrast this with David, who during the time that was a season of spring when kings went to battle, he stayed in Jerusalem. He was supposed to be on assignment, but he was not. And he was distracted by a lady called Bathsheba by his eyes. And you know what happened after that. Point number five. I want you to acknowledge that there are very fine lines that are easily crossed. Now what do I mean by this? You look at James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. God doesn't tempt anyone. That's what it says in the verse before. It says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So what does it start with? It starts with a desire. That word desire can be replaced with the word of a passion, right? Something that you, you, you want a lot. You can translate passion to another word called lust. 
So desire is a nice word. But when that desire is enticed, you start to dwell on that, you start to think about that. Then you never know when you cross that next line. You follow? That's why I'm saying it's a very fine line. And I think the, the challenge for many of us is that we think we know where that line is. We think we won't cross it. Or if we cross the first one, we think, okay, no problem. I think the next one I should be able to stop. Or maybe the next one I should be able to stop. And amen, before you know it, it's too late. And like I said, you see, the enemy doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is just to maybe throw a little bit of encouragement along the way. Say, no problem, you, you're, you're okay. You're, you're cool, no problem. God understands. He made you this way. It's a very, very fine line. and You have to realize that. Point number six, filter and discern. We live in a highly sexualized society. Everything has been sexed up. And acknowledge this, we've all been very desensitized. Our eyes have been very desensitized. Where in decades past, you would not see lingerie advertising in a newspaper. Today, it's all over Orchard Road. Big billboards, both men as well as women. We have come to accept everything as normal. Premarital sex is fine. Singles going on vacation together. Christians going on vacation together. Women as sex objects. Immodest dressing. Very interesting. You go to church, we dress as modestly as we would. You attend a Christian wedding, suddenly everyone is very vogue. Am I correct? But in church, we don't do these things. The point is, if we don't do, we don't do. It's not whether you're in church or not. Cohabitation, casual sex partners, multiple sex partners. How about the media? What movies are we watching? And I'm not saying don't watch the movie. I'm saying filter and discern because many times within the movie, there will always be a storyline that involves a hero that gets his girl. And even if it's 15 seconds a scene, somehow he gets his girl. And now they're trying to weave storylines in where the girl gets her girl. Where do you draw the line? Music videos, lyrics, it's all over. You see, if you don't learn to filter and to discern, or you don't learn to, to know and recognize those fine lines and you don't know where to stop, you just get swept along. What are your boundaries? What's your worldview? What is right? Who makes it right? Who defines that? Point number seven, find help, Really? And I'm not saying wait until you, you, you are in a dire situation or consequence, you know, then you'll find help. Even from the start right now, talk to people, have partners, accountability partners, have open dialogues, talk to people you trust and you respect. If you're struggling with some aspect, be open. Talk to parents, their teachers, their leaders, their pastors, their counselors. If you need to talk to a friend, please choose a good friend, a mature friend, a a Christian friend who, who would be willing to say things to you and to help you. But first, before you can find help, you must admit and acknowledge that you need help. Many people are struggling with sexual sin, with pornography, with adultery, with premarital sex, some even with same-sex attraction within the church. You have to come to that point where you admit and you acknowledge you're able to talk to someone. Not always easy, but I'm thankful that the church is slowly opening up to some of these things. That we are able to talk about sexuality more candidly now, okay, and more honestly. If you need inner healing, if you need deliverance, if you need restoration, you have to talk to someone. Find help. These are very practical steps. For the married people, point number eight, have a fulfilling marriage. And here I'm not just talking about going out for date nights and stuff like that. If we're talking about physical things here, I'm talking about having sexual intimacy. Physical intimacy, if, if both are healthy, everything is fine, love, serve, satisfy one another. The Bible says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 105, a husband has authority over the woman's body. Now, it's not one-sided. The woman has authority over the husband's body also. Alright, so don't just read one verse and stop there and think that it is the man that needs it all the time. But it's a mutual submission, serving of one another, and at times, especially in today's very stressful environment, 
It will require sacrifice at times to serve each other, fulfill each other's needs. And if you need help in this area, go back to the point before that, find help. Get counseling. Seek treatment. Don't be shy. Because what you're doing is that you are addressing a very, very important and a very critical aspect in your marriage. Both of you need to come to terms to this. But let me let you in on a, I won't say a little secret just in case you imagine beyond what I have to say. Spiritual intimacy helps your physical intimacy. Spiritual intimacy will help your physical intimacy. A couple that prays together opens up secrets to one another. You hide nothing. You put God first. You submit to the Lord. There's fear of the Lord within the marriage. And will not God strengthen both of you spiritually? And that works it out in the physical. In the way you love one another, the way you talk to each other, the way that you submit to each other in every other intimate area of your life. You may want to consider that. Begin to pray together, read the Bible together, serve together. makes a whole lot of difference. Point number nine, be faithful in your marriage. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 to 19 says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Be faithful in your marriage. Rejoice in one another, not just the wife of your youth, but also the husband of your youth. And not just of your youth, because as you love one another, your, your love will mature beyond your youthful looks. As we grow old together, the love matures beyond just the physical. Proverbs 31, 30 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing. So if you are spending tons of money trying to stay young and look beautiful and uh, have your tummy tucked, you've got to think again. How long are you able to do that? We're all brainwashed by the media and the beauty industry that looks at everything. And today we live in a society that is use and throw. And so in our marriage also, we want to use and throw. Be faithful. Be faithful. Finally, I left the last point as the most important, really. Be fire ready. Remember Jesus was saying, it's better for you to take out one member of your body than for the whole body to be cast into hell fire. Was Jesus talking about eternal damnation? Ask yourself, do you think if you are committing adultery today and you're not, you're not going to deal with it, are you going to end up in hell? But I thought I'm saved. I don't think he was talking about salvation there because if that's the case, then it's salvation by works. That we can do something and then we get out of hell. Our salvation is entirely by faith according to His grace. Is that it, correct? So we have to be consistent. I believe Jesus wasn't just talking about he wasn't referring to salvation per se. He was referring to sanctification. Do you remember this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 to 15? It says there's no other foundation that you can lay on except Jesus Christ. But you have to be careful. I'm paraphrasing. You have to be careful what you build on this foundation. Do you build it with precious stones or with wood, hay and straw? Because one day it will be tested by fire. What are you building on? And I believe that as you take caution and you are putting in effort to cleanse yourself, we read that passage just now, to mortify the body, to, to put to death the deeds, the effort that you're doing, you are building with precious stones. But if you're not doing that and you're just doing your Christian stuff and think that you're going to get away scot-free, then you are building with wood and hay and straw. And one day the fire will come, it will test and in verse 15, of course, it says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's going to be a judgment-testing fire to separate that and to reveal that. But it says it will be saved as through fire. And then some might go, Oh, I'm going to underline that one phrase. It's the question again, then we have to ask, does it mean that it's okay to continue in adultery, then in fornication? Because after all, we are saved. Again, 
Let me just read you Galatians 5, 19 to 21, not the whole thing, but it says, the works of the flesh are evident. So if you're living like this with fornication, adultery and all that, Paul says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 says the same thing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, now he talks about the unrighteous, right? So he says, well, phew, that's the people outside. We are righteous in Christ. He says, but do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and so on. These will not inherit also the kingdom of God. Ephesians says the same thing. By the time it comes to Revelation, it says the same thing. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you go figure this out. Can we live flippantly? You see, this is the question I'm asking. And I think that's what we need to ask ourselves. Because in 1 John chapter 5, 16-17, it says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he... God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There's sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now all unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin leading to death. Now there are different interpretations of this, but you can agree with me that there are two categories now of sin. One that leads to death and one that does not. So my question for us is, Christians, can we be presumptuous and live flippantly. When the Bible warns us over and over and over again, can we one day stand before God and say, but you didn't tell me? You have to process that. Alright, so I leave you these 10 points, practical things, because we all still wrestle with some of these issues every now and then. Let me close. Let us remember that Jesus was addressing His disciples. The community of the King, He was not addressing the world. And I don't want us to make that mistake because it's very easy for us to look at today's sexual revolution and the immorality in society and and we try to take this this verse or this passage and we apply them to the various groups of people to say, look at them, how terrible they are committing adultery, they are in fornication and so on. If we do that only, we will miss the entire point of what Jesus is saying. Today, if you have not done your 40-day reading, the last passage says this, Promiscuity is on the rise in the church. A family-focused group in Singapore did a pilot survey of Christians. This is what they found. 71% of Christians surveyed have viewed pornography at some time in their life. 30% have viewed pornography at least once in the past six months. Own up, don't blame the devil. There's problem in the church. There's problem that we have to deal with. And if you want to deal with lust, you have to deal with lust first in the church. And that means us. We are the church. And sadly, we tend to get it upside down. You notice we don't deal with these things in our church often enough. We don't talk about these things. And that's why today it has come to bite us in our back. Where the world has looked at us and said, who are you to tell us how to live? Your marriages are breaking down. You're having the same problems. And adultery is as rampant in the church as it is in the society. Personally, I've heard of pastors, leaders, elders who have been caught in adultery, sexual sin. Don't talk about the leaders, how about the members? How many Christians are secretly engaged in pornography? We have to address first the lust that is in us. If it means a finger pointing at ourselves, then we have to say, yeah, that's us. And so if you're struggling with lust or if you're engaged with sexual sin, let me just say this gently, pastorally. This has to stop. Because it will ruin your life, your marriage, your family, your relationships, your testimony, your ministry, your assignments. If you know of someone who's struggling in this area, then learn to speak the truth in love. Be gracious, but be very firm. But at the same time, maybe that's your assignment. Be prepared to journey with them. So friends, I leave you with these thoughts. And I know it has not been an easy topic to share again. And each week when I teach expositorily through this Kingdom 101, I struggle and I wrestle with the Lord because there are certain issues I don't want to talk about. But I don't get to choose the topics. We are led by the Scripture. 
And so keep praying for me even as we close. And let me pray for you. And I want you to be praying for me because if you know your scripture, next week is another difficult topic to address. And we're going to talk about divorce. So let's pray. Father, we commit this to you, Lord. And we know, Lord, that each of us, we struggle at different levels. And this is not a word of condemnation or judgment, presuming that or to tear anyone down. But Lord, this is just a word of acknowledgement that we're all weak in this area and we struggle. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the work of Jesus upon the cross that washes us, that if we would confess, you would forgive us. You will cleanse us. You will restore us. But Lord Jesus, as you said to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Lord, help us because we need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit and your strength. If you're struggling with any part of this, there is grace that is at a cross. But also, after that, live for Jesus and bring honor to Him that the holiness of our Lord will be demonstrated through our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you and we bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.